Hi, this is Rabbi Sandra Lawson, and you're listening to Drinking and Joshing Torah with a Twist. And I am feeling a little conflicted about which bourbon to put in Gabe's drink. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. Okay, so I know that you told me that maybe we had too many Hillel connections as guests on the show. Is that true? Yeah, we've been pulling from that bin a lot. Okay, but what if I had one more Hillel connection who was super incredibly awesome? I mean, I guess. And technically, she doesn't even work for Hillel anymore. Oh, well then, yeah, sure. Okay, but hear me out. This would be like a reunion, which is perfect for Vayishlach, especially because Jacob gets to reunite with Asa. And so for me, this would be an incredible opportunity to reconnect with an excellent, excellent Jewish professional. Okay, so who is it? Well, it's... So if last week we were talking about going out on a journey... What happens when we might be trying to send someone out or having a direction? Well, sometimes that can be a little scary, especially if we are bad with directions, as I generally am. In fact, I'm really lucky because on this podcast, at least two people have gotten me out of major, major directional gaffes, whether it's in Jerusalem, in New York, in New Jersey, or just trying to find my way around the transit system. Directions aren't always the best thing, which is difficult when you're on a journey or when you're trying to get yourself out of a bit of difficulty or challenge. If you don't know where you're going, if you don't know where you're starting, then what do you do next? That's something that we deal with in Vayishlak this week, but it's also something that our featured guest has a lot of experience with in terms of finding ways to figure out how to give people direction or how to help people find how to create their own direction. So we're really, really excited to have Rabbi Sandra Lawson with us today. Rabbi Sandra Lawson, she, her, works with senior staff, lay leaders, clergy, rabbinical students, and reconstructionist communities to help reconstructing Judaism realize its deeply held aspiration of becoming an anti-racist organization and movement. In her role, Lawson is developing a series of anti-racist policies and trainings for the organization and its affiliate members. She also serves as a mentor to rabbinical students. And not just at RRC, she does it all over the world. Don't worry about it. The 2018 Reconstructionist Rabbinical College graduate is one of the first African-American queer female rabbis. Sandra has consciously sought to alter the perception of what a rabbi and the rabbinate looks like. Lawson is known for tackling difficult questions surrounding Jews and race in podcasts, essays, media appearances, and speeches. She's been all over the place. A social media pioneer, Lawson models what it means to teach Torah in digital spaces, or, in terms of language we use, how to translate Torah into true and tangible tactics. She has built a following of more than 50,000 people on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok. In 2020, the forward named Lawson to its forward 50, proclaiming her a truth teller. Prior to joining Reconstructing Judaism, Lawson served as the Associate Chaplain for Jewish Life and the Senior Jewish Educator at Hillel at Elon University in North Carolina. We have two North Carolinian guests back-to-back. That's really exciting. She's also the founder of Kol Hapanim, All Faces, an inclusive Jewish community that is relevant, accessible, and rooted in tradition, where all who come are welcomed and diversity is embraced. Lawson served in the U.S. Army as a military police person with a specialty in military police investigations. She specialized in cases involving child abuse and domestic violence. Upon leaving the military, she started a personal training business and later worked as an adjunct instructor of sociology at local community colleges. Has there really been anything that you haven't done in your life? This is like a very exciting bio to read through. She has also served as the investigative researcher for the Anti-Defamation League Southeast region, becoming the go-to person when law enforcement in the South needed information on hate groups. And of course, because we know you've been waiting for this, Lawson lives in North Carolina with her wife, Susan, and three fur babies, Izzy, Bridget, and Simon. Rabbi Lawson, we are so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. And 
the beauty of having a communications person <laughs> write your bio. I've done a lot of things and I hope to do more. You know, life's kind of short and trying to make the best out of it. And we're going to learn from that expertise today and all of the different experience that you've had. I think that it's helped shape a lot of the teachings. Another person who shapes a lot of the teachings that I get to have every week, especially when we are definitely doing our homework together and not working on the podcast, is co-host Gabe Snyder. What's going on, Gabe? Hey, Amanda. It's great to have you here. And of course, our favorite, our only executive producer, Edon Waldman, who just in case people were keeping track at home, we got to hang out with like four or five times last week. It was very exciting. What's going on, Edon? Happy to be with everybody. We are super excited to have this be one more time that we get to hang out, even if it's virtual. So excited to start the show. So ready for some very important conversations. And we'll admit, possibly some difficult ones. Let's get started. Quick content warning, this parasha contains an instance of sexual violence. Jacob and company are traveling from Laban's land back towards Jacob's home. Jacob decides it's time to make amends with Esau after the whole birthright stealing thing, so he sends some messengers ahead of the camp to tell Esau he wants to make peace. The messengers return with the misleadingly ominous report that Esau is coming to meet Jacob with 400 men. Jacob is, as one would be, very scared of the ensuing retribution that is sure to befall him at the hands of his brother, so he divides all of his people and stuff into two separate camps so that at least one can escape and survive when Esau attacks. Jacob to God, saying he is unworthy of God's help, but still asks for the safety and protection God promised him last week. The next day, in a last-ditch effort to change Esau's mind about destroying Jacob's entire group, he sends out gifts of livestock to Esau, 200 goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. I don't know about Esau, but Jacob would have had my forgiveness at the 200 goats. That night, after crossing a river with Rachel, Leah, Bilha, Zilpah, and his 11 sons, no mention of Dina here, but she'll come up later, and all of his stuff... Jacob was left alone and he wrestled with a man until dawn. Who's this guy? Don't know, but he saw that he couldn't beat Jacob, so he struck Jacob in the hip and said, Let me go. But Jacob demanded that the man bless him before he would relent. The man asked, What's your name? Because I guess we frequently wrestle all night with people without knowing their names. And Jacob introduces himself. Nope, says the wrestler. From now on, you're Israel. For you have struggled with God and man, and you have prevailed. Jacob asks for the man's name, but the man says, Why do you ask? And then leaves. Cool. Jacob names the place Peniel because he saw God face to face. Wait, he saw God? I thought that was just some guy. Oh, by the way, Jews don't eat thigh muscle because of the whole Jacob getting punched in the hip thing. Anyway, Jacob looks off in the distance and he sees Esau coming in the distance. Does Esau fall off of his camel? No, but he does have those 400 men the messengers warned about. So Jacob splits up his family with Bilhah and Zilpah in the front with their kids, then Leah and her kids, then Rachel and Joseph last. Jacob goes out ahead of all of them and bows down to the ground seven times as he approaches Esau, so Esau kills him, right? Wrong. Esau runs in slow motion and hugs him and leans into his neck and kisses him and they burst into tears. The fact that this hasn't been made into a movie astounds me. Jacob introduces his massive family to his brother with all the women and the sons bowing to greet him. Esau asks about the animals Jacob sent ahead of him and Esau says, I can't possibly, but I insist. This is too much. Take the gift. Eventually, Esau relents and takes the zoo that Jacob had sent for him. Esau offers to a Company Jacob back home, but Jacob doesn't want to slow him down with all of the kids and animals, so the brothers go their separate ways, with Jacob going off and building a house and stables in Sukkot. Eventually, Jacob arrives to the city of Shechem in the land of Canaan and sets up camp. He buys some land and builds an altar. Separate story. One day, Dina, the daughter of Leah and Jacob, went out to see the women of the city. Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, a local prince, attacked and raped her, and then afterwards fell in love with her. Shechem asked his father to acquire Dina from Jacob to be his wife. When Jacob and sons heard of Dina's assault, they were incredibly angry, so when Hamor asked for Dina as a bride for his son, they formed a plan. They said, we couldn't possibly have her marry an uncircumcised man. You can have her, but only if your son and all of your men circumcise themselves. So they all circumcise themselves, which is incredibly painful. On the third day, when they were in their greatest pain from their pre 
anesthetic ancient surgeries, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, went into the city with swords and killed every man in the city, all defenseless in their pain. So too they killed Hamor and Shechem and took Dina back home. They took with them all of the stuff in the city. Jacob was not too pleased with his son's actions, believing this would make trouble with the local Canaanites and Perizzites, but Simeon and Levi stand their ground, believing they did the right thing. God tells Jacob to go to Bethel, where he slept on a rock and dreamed about a ladder and built an altar there. He does so and again names the city Bethel, which he already did in the last parasha, but whatever. Anyway, Rachel goes into labor with her second son, but the birth is difficult and she dies as a result. The son is named Benjamin and Rachel is buried in Bethlehem. There's a kind of half verse that comes out of nowhere where Reuben has some kind of affair with Bilhah, but we don't get any more information. Weird. Jacob finally reaches Isaac, who is now 180 years old. Isaac dies and the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, bury him just as Isaac and Ishmael buried their father. The portion ends with the genealogy of Jacob and Esau's descendants. And that's Parashat Vayishlach. That was great. Wow. That was pretty cool. Thank you. There's a lot going on in that Torah portion. Like, it goes in so many different directions. Yeah. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read The Red Tent. I read it a million years ago. And I'm just thinking about that. And Anita Diamond, yeah, and her perspective, her midrash on the whole story. It's just really interesting. We had Amelia Diamond and her mother, Anita Diamond, on the show uh, back last season in Parashat Korach. But let's head back to Genesis with Parashat Vayishlach. Rabbi Lawson, I am really, really touched that you managed to find the time to be with us today, especially in the midst of about 8 million meetings that you need to be at. And one thing that I think some of our listeners may be wondering about is what exactly is reconstructing Judaism? Yeah, I love that question. And I did have a class that I had to take to be able to condense that down into two minutes. Class was a long time ago, but I was taught how to explain that because that is a question that we get a lot. What I'll say, and I'll try to keep it short and brief, is that to really understand reconstructing Judaism Part of what you need to understand is what Judaism was like at the early part of the 20th century and, you know, how the reform movement was, how the conservative movement was. Today, there's a lot more similarities between the different movements and the Reconstructionist movement broke away from the conservative movement in the 20th century, mostly around issues of chosenness, egalitarianism, and believing in a supernatural being. None of those ideas are radical today. They were then. The founder Mordecai Kaplan believed that everyone should have the same obligations and rights and privileges in a community and that, you know, we should um, embrace our past. So like there's a saying like the past should get a vote, not a veto. And that's, I think, some pushback with the reform movement in the 20th century because they had let go of so much. And Mordecai Kaplan believed that you could be an intellectual and be a religious person, which those things were very different in the 20th century. So Amanda read your bio earlier, and it's got so many different things. She joked that there's nothing you haven't done. There's so many different pieces of your work. And I'm wondering if there's a through line for you, if there's something, whether it's a value or an idea that connects your work, not just now, but like across your history. First of all, I want to say when I was in the military or when I was in college or when I was in high school or a kid, if you had told me I'd be a rabbi today, I would have, first of all, not known what you're talking about. And I would have thought that you had seriously been smoking something because I was so far away from anything like that. But I do think, you know, looking back, whether it's somebody, whether a higher power, supernatural, somebody driving my life, everything has led to the next step. I knew at a very young age that I was probably going to join the military, work in law enforcement because those are things I wanted to do. And I also knew that I would go to college and I had aspirations of being an academic. And I held on to that PhD dream for a very long time. I've let it go and because I thought that's what you do. I wanted to work on a college campus and I wanted to be a cool professor. I've worked on several college campuses. I just don't have a PhD in sociology. You know, I joined the military to get law enforcement experience while I was in the military, I got training on police investigations and domestic violence and child abuse. And then when I got out of the military, I was like, I don't want to work for anybody for a while. I don't want to take any orders. I wanted to be able to just quit a job if I wanted to quit it. 
And I also needed something flexible because I was going to go to graduate school. And I started a personal training business because in the military, I was really fit and good at teaching fitness. And I started a personal training business. And I was so good at it, I was making money. So that getting that master's degree took about like nine years or something. And, and then when I was in graduate school, I wanted to study race and class and gender and found all of that in environmental justice work. And so my graduate degree in sociology focuses on environmental justice. And today I'm a rabbi. And so all of those things that I did, I think it was my attempt at trying to make my life better and the world better. Like I think I've always had a larger worldview. My dad says that I remind him of his grandfather, so my great-grandfather. Like my dad said to me one day, he probably doesn't even remember, I used it in a podcast when we were talking about Joseph and how Joseph was different. And so my dad calls me up one day and he's like, you know, you remind me of your great-grandfather. He was somebody who dared to be different. And he's like, that's good. And then bye. That was <laughs> the conversation. And I've talked to him more about that since, but he just like had this memory of his grandfather and he wanted to share that with me. So I've always just beat it to my own drum in many ways. I really appreciate that, especially because I think sometimes it's how I felt. I think that sometimes I see Torah or text from a different lens that other people might, or I might even approach Judaism in a different style than some people will think of. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I know that you brought up uh, your work with domestic violence and your work with some child abuse situations, is, you know, recently we've talked about different portions where characters haven't entirely been seen for who they are. We talked about that with Jacob and Asa and Toldot. And with Dina in this particular narrative, she's not mentioned until all of a sudden she's mentioned as a person who goes through a really horrible experience. And her family reacts really horrifically in this moment in a place that ends up being a foreshadow for another tour person that we'll get to later down the line of something really bad that happens in this location. And so I'm curious how the work that you've done may influence how you look at the story of Dina. And and I know that you said that there was a story that you might be interested in sharing with us today that you said ha, has some ups and downs of some of the work that you did. Yeah, I mean, just listening. One of the things I love about our tradition is that, at least for me, I'm always looking at the Torah portion with whatever is going on in my head at that moment or whatever I'm living with right now. And so like listening, Gabe, to you talk about the Torah portion, you know, I'm thinking about all these instances of domestic violence and how men in our society respond to so many things violently, especially when it comes to women or if someone's manhood is talked about in a negative way or something. But Often when men get angry, they use words that demonize women and they say that to other men. But it's interesting that we see that in this week's Torah portion by Ishlach. And we also see something we also see in our real lives is those same men want to be very incredibly protective of the women in their lives. And I'll just tell you like a personal story. And if my dad is listening, we'll talk about it. So, you know, like my dad was one of those men. He wasn't like a violent person, but he used his power in ways that I'm not proud of. We've talked about it. And, you know, as an older man who's an advocate for veterans, he called me up one day and he asked me about my experiences in the military and he asked me if I was ever sexually harassed. And I said, yes. And I was never assaulted. I had men say incredibly inappropriate things to me and nothing bad happened to me. I just had to navigate my way out of situations. And he was so mad. He said that he was speaking to women veterans or something. And I said, Dad, honestly, I don't think you're the right person for that. I think you need to really take a good hard look at how you treated women when, you know, you were in a position of power. And he said that was really hard for him to hear. And he understood. And that was like the first time we'd ever talked about that. From my vantage point as a child to my how I see this today, my dad was a womanizer. Like he used women, which contributed to his divorcing my mother. With that said, I have a great relationship with my dad. I love my dad. But, you know, I think that men in our society reflect a lot what we see in this week's tour abortion. And he has a wonderful wife now. And he, one of the things he said to me around their 10th anniversary was that he had never cheated on her. And I said, that's great. 
I can really appreciate the connection that you're bringing from this week's door portion into the modern day, into what we're seeing with men in today's society. I can also really appreciate the complexity in what you're saying, that there's so much nuance, that there's, you know, I recognize these flaws in my father, and yet I have this great relationship with my father, and I love him very much, and I can still call him out on these things, and I can still say, you know, this was a really bad thing that you did, and you need to think about this, and, you know, I'm going to call you out on it. Maybe that's not even a contradiction. Maybe one follows the other. Maybe that ability or that desire to have those honest and tough conversations comes out of a place of love, comes out of a place of wanting somebody to be better. And I am curious about this story with Dina. Jacob and Simeon and Levi have very different reactions. Jacob hears what had happened, and Simeon and Levi are still out in the field. Jacob hears the story first. And Jacob is upset, but Jacob doesn't do anything. Jacob's just upset. We don't hear of any action. And then Simeon and Levi get back, and they're enraged. And they come up with this whole plan to make all the men in the city circumcise themselves and then kill all of them. And then Jacob is upset with them because Jacob doesn't agree with that action. And I'm wondering how much of that might be a product of age, how much of that might be a product of generation. You know, we see in our own society today, certainly baby boomers looking down on Gen Xers, looking down on millennials, looking down on Gen Zers, looking around and saying, like, what are you doing? Like, that's absolutely not the right way to approach this problem. And so I'm wondering how generational factors and age factors might factor in in addition to the obvious gender issues. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, just listening to you, I mean, first of all, like Jacob is older. I have no idea how old Simeon and Ruben are in this Parsha. And, you know, I see this sort of like how I see this in a connection with like young activists versus older activists. And so like for young people, there's often... Not always, but like people react. I remember what I was like in my 20s talking to somebody who was 10 years older than me about queer issues. I'm like, why aren't you mad? Why aren't you mad? You know, we must do something. And they're like, it's fine. And, you know, generationally, young people can learn a lot from the experiences of their elders and vice versa, because I've learned a lot from young activists that I work with. And Jacob in this moment, and I haven't thought about this before until now, he's like, I imagine that he is trying to figure out what to do with this situation. And before he could figure it out, his sons went ahead and in some ways you could say disrespected him because he's their dad and made a decision for him and was also like calculating and horrific instead of just going in and kill them. Like, okay, we'll accept you, but our custom is everyone must be circumcised. And then Shechem and that whole folks over there are going to do that and trust and then they get murdered. It's just a whole complex-ish to complex thing. I mean, like, yes, Dina is raped and that is horrible, but then all these other horrible things happen on top of it. I've been listening to you, Sandra, and it, it brought up some things for me, especially regarding Jacob in this moment. And so I was thinking about this idea of Jacob in this story and his either conflict or aim to resolve conflict with Asa. And Jacob gets a name. He gets a name in this Parsha after he wrestles with a man, with an angel, with God, with insert thought here. But there are two ways that people have talked about Jacob's new name of Yisrael. There are some that say what the Torah says, right? That your name, Yemar od shimcha ki im Yisrael ki saritza im Elohim, right? That you're going to be no longer named Jacob, but you're going to be named Israel, because you have struggled, you have wrestled, you have inserted, you know, whatever pugilistic term here that you want to with God. And that is this idea of when people say, listen, you God wrestlers, right? For Shema Israel, it's Gabe's favorite interpretation. And there are others that say, we, no, 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 it, it's not about Jacob's struggle. It, it really was meant to be Yisrael, Yashar El that Jacob had a straight link to God, that there was a straight connection. But what you said 
in a really powerful moment is that Jacob might have just been trying to figure out what to do with this situation, whether it's struggling with it or whether it's trying to hit it straight on. I'm curious how that informs some of the anti-racism work that you're doing with reconstructing Judaism and the trainings that you're working on for people that are trying to figure out what to do with these situations at hand in, in our communities, and especially those who are really, really struggling, or even for those who are like, no, 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 I got this, but might be missing the mark a little bit. It might not be so yeshar. So I will answer that question. You may have to come back to it, but I also want to touch on something about the name change. And if I am wrong, I don't have a big ego, but I believe it was Rashi. Rashi says that Jacob's name means like trickster or lurker, and that was one of the reasons for the name change. And then listening to you, Amanda, ask that question, I'm wondering also if Jacob is, since he's no longer that trickster, and can imagine being more thoughtful today, if he sees himself and his sons, and that's not what he wants them to be, because he used to be that way. I don't know. That's some things I thought about. So I appreciate that take. How can we translate Jacob's change of heart, whether it's dealing with struggling or dealing with trying to go straight on into some of the anti-racism work that you are dealing with today in reconstructing Judaism? You know, racism is so systematic in our society. It's just part of the fabric. It's part of the price that we pay for being American citizens because our society was designed to privilege one group of people over another group of people. So you could also add anti-Semitism, sexism, all of those things. And, you know, you can gender and sexual orientation, all that stuff, because that was the core foundation of how our society was. Even whiteness has changed over time. Like the original white folks in this country were the British. No other European group were classified as white. I'm saying all this not to give you a history lesson, and I don't want to keep going down that road, I'm saying that because it's so interwoven that there is no easy fix, there's no easy answer, there are multiple ways to approach the problem and to try to fix it, and there are multiple ways to mess it up, and many people are trying to figure that out. And I'm, you know, one of those people that I'm trying my best to help our congregations move towards anti-racism. And with that, I also work with our rabbis and our movement. I support our rabbinical students of color. And I think one of the challenges is you have one group of people who have the everyday lived experience of being colorized or experience racism in our society. And you have another group of people that have no idea what that experience is like, but they know it's bad. And because they don't have those experiences, and often many white folks do not have close relationships with people of color, it is often hard for white people to believe <laughs> the experiences that BIPOC folks have because it's not their experience. And since it's not the white experience, therefore it doesn't exist, which I think is just ridiculous. And you have another group of white folks that are trying, they understand that on an intellectual level and are trying to work with BIPOC people. But because of how our society is, one group of people have privilege over another group of people, sometimes without really thinking about it, or maybe they are thinking about it, white people tend to take over spaces that BIPOC people have because they believe that they have the best answer or they don't like how things are going. And also black, brown, and white people are socialized very differently in our society. And I kind of feel like one of the things that I am trying to do is I'm trying to help the larger white Jewish community and the larger privileged Ashkenazi, but also, you know, you don't have to be white to be Ashkenazi or white people who benefit from white privilege, understand that we need to stop saying we're not racist and we need to say that we're trying to be anti-racist and we need to acknowledge when racism shows up and work through it instead of denying that it's there and not doing anything about it. But like I said, there's no book. There's no, I'm sure 20 years from now, there'll be a PhD program somewhere on all the stuff that we're doing now. And maybe there is one already. I don't, I don't know. Can you hear us on? I'm curious about this idea of coming together in a common cause of anti-racism, this call to come together for people who experience white privilege, for white people, for people of color to come together in this way. 
And I think that there's a lot of, as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of weird feelings going on. And there's a lot of discomfort. And one of the moments in this Torah portion that that brings my head into is that moment when Jacob and Esau finally reunite. There's that very famous word in chapter 33, verse 4, Vaishakehu, and he kissed him, meaning Esau kisses Jacob. And if you're only looking at the Peshat, the simple, the base level of the text, that's all it means is that Esau kissed him. But if you look at any Torah scroll, there are dots above each letter. And there are 10 words in the Torah that have dots over them, and it's a whole thing, and we can get into that another time. But there's a lot of commentary on these dots. Why are they there? What's going on? And much of the commentary revolves around, was the kiss sincere? They embrace, he fell on his neck, he kissed him, and they wept. And yet, is it sincere? Is the kiss a real kiss? And different commentators say different things, both in the Talmud and in the medieval period. And this isn't really a question. This is just a statement to say that even at these moments of great joy, even at these moments of coming together, there can be these really complex feelings. Maybe Esau doesn't completely forgive Jacob. I think it would be difficult to. Maybe Jacob isn't totally confident that Esau's not going to hurt him. And also they're still coming together, and they still come together to bury their father, just as Isaac and Ishmael did, which I think is a really beautiful thing. I do want to move on to our last question that we ask every guest before we finish up our conversation. Rabbi Lawson, if you had one message to share with our listeners, what would your call to action be? What are you hoping your listeners will do after hearing this episode? I think trying to narrow it down to one action. And, you know, as I said earlier, I often, when I read the Torah portion, I listen to the four Torah portion. And that was really a beautiful download game. Whatever is moving to the front of my brain is like what's speaking to me in that moment. And, you know, when I used to work at Elon as a chaplain and a Hillel educator, people wanted more text other than Tikkun Olam, Betzelim Elohim, you know. And I found the text to help people struggle in that moment. And going back to B'Tselem Elohim, what I think is important, what I want the Jewish community to understand is that whole idea of created in God's image, each of us has a spark of the divine, each of us are created in God's image, which means we're all related, (laughs) you know, we're all kin, and each of us has a spark of the divine, and a spark of us is in the divine as well. I want to believe, obviously naively, but I do want to believe that if people would remember that, that we were all created in the divine image, that we would be better off. And particularly for the Jewish community on this issue, last year I leaned really heavily on Parshat Bo. I wrote a piece about it that's coming out in a book soon. And the part in Parshat Bo, after plague, after plague, has just, you know, destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptians or... And we are leaving Mitzrayim, following Moshe Rabbeinu in the desert. The text says, like, heir of Rav Elah. So, like, a mixed multitude of people went up with them. And so who's the them? And who's the mixed multitude? I recently had a conversation with an older rabbi friend of mine who, when I was teaching this text, was focused on the them, as if the them was someone else. It wasn't just all the Israelites. I said, I understand that. And he's like, well, you know, some of the you know, Egyptians went too. And I said, that's probably true. And then he kept focusing on like the other people. And what I said to him is, it doesn't matter who went with them. Because by the time we get to Mount Sinai <laughs> and we receive the Torah, we're all one people. We left a mixed multitude, whoever they were, and we get to Mount Sinai and we receive the Torah and we're all one people. And in Hebrew, the Vagam Erevrav, which is often translated as moreover, in this piece that I talked about, I translate it as and also, because I find that the text is telling us that we've always been and will forever be a mixed multitude, and don't forget it. That's what I want the Jewish community to understand. And for everyone else, including Jews, we're all related. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. 
You know, Thanksgiving is coming up pretty soon. It is. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, and I hear that you may be having a certain reunion with some brothers of yours. Yeah, I haven't seen my youngest brother since he went to college back in August. Are those reunions always sweet or do you have fun or do you fight? Like, is it just everything is good to go or sometimes is there a little bit of tension? I mean, I think like any brothers, it's kind of a mixed bag. But in the end, we love each other and it's nice to be together. I was curious, as you're thinking ahead, if there might be any sort of thing that you could share together, like a movie or a meal or who knows, even a drink recipe? Well, I'm glad you asked, because in honor of Parashat Vayishlach, we are proud to present the Brothers' Red Reunion. It's been a long time since the brothers have seen each other, so start off with two to three time sprigs. Sorry. Muddle those together in a cocktail shaker to release the oils. Add in one ounce of blood orange juice for Esau. Remember, he's the red one. And one ounce of grapefruit juice for Jacob, because let's be real, his actions toward Esau could leave a sour taste in your mouth. Add in two ounces of bourbon for all the livestock. Livestock makes me think of bourbon, don't at me. And add in a teaspoon of honey, because at the end of the day, it's a sweet reunion. Shake all that with ice, strain over fresh ice in a rocks glass, and garnish with a sprig of thyme. For a non-alcoholic version, omit the bourbon, and instead, top your shaken juices and honey with two ounces of club soda. If you're trying to convince your estranged brother not to kill you, try making him this drink. And, after a long time apart, maybe enjoy it together. A toast to brotherhood, Lechaim. I love that. That drink sounds amazing. I would never have thought to make it myself, and I can't wait to try it. And thank you for putting bourbon in it. Anytime. Wait, is there a particular bourbon? Does it matter? So, this is a good question. I, personally am not much of a bourbon drinker. I'm more of a scotch person myself, but I know that Amanda likes bourbon, and I'm sure that she has an opinion. Amanda, you never get to talk on this segment. I'm really excited. Okay, so the question is, when would you want this to be drunk? At dinner? At dessert? As, like, just an aperitif? Like, when are you thinking? Just, you know, like, I have thoughts about this. No, I appreciate that. I imagine this as a pre-dinner drink. Like, I imagine that people get together, and this is when there's, like, there's cheese and crackers out, and maybe some hummus and some crudite, and, you know, it's nice, but it's not dinner time yet. In my head. Make this drink whenever you want, but in my head, that's the context. Okay, so if you were going to do it as a dessert, as a drink that you were possibly doing a dessert, I would have suggested Buffalo Trace, which tends to go really beautifully with sweeter things. For those people who love apple-esque desserts, if you have a bit of Buffalo Trace with you, it will actually make those apple-based desserts like even sweeter. Just so you know, sorry, listeners, Gabe was right. I never talk in this section, and now you know why. If you were doing it with dinner, I might suggest something like a little bit more robust, kind of like a possible redemption rye or a bullet bourbon, especially if you're going to mix probably a bullet bourbon. Because you're thinking about doing it as kind of an appetizer slash snack slash hangout, bullet is still a good thing to do. I wouldn't do it with the rye necessary. I would actually do it with the bullet bourbon. The rye is a little stronger than the bourbon, which is why I would suggest doing it with the bullet bourbon. Or I would possibly consider doing it with a bourbon that my friend Lainey just gave me recently as a gift, which is Woodford Reserve, which can also be like a nicely mixed in drink, but still carries a strong undertone. So thank you for asking my opinion about (laughs) what bourbon to use for this particular drink. If you're going for more red dish, then like, yeah, probably the Woodford Reserve might get you closer to the color. Was that helpful? I hope it was helpful. Cheers. That was great. I really wish my wife wasn't here to hear half of this. Like, I was like, I'm just learning. (laughs) And here I would have just said, "Ah, I don't know, Maker's Mark, that works. Well, it does matter because like years ago, I got some tequila was gifted to me. And I was told that it was really good. And then I made some mixed drinks with it, which was horrible. They were horrible. Then I just decided to try the tequila on its own. I was like, oh, 
this should never be mixed with anything. I think my wife is destroying the kitchen. I don't know if you can hear that. But <laughs> so that's why I always ask. But I love this. And hopefully, Amanda, you and I can, like, you could, we could sit down and drink some bourbon. You can help me, educate me. <laughs> I would be delighted. Anytime. Please come to New York. Gabe will give up being a scotch drinker for the night and he will drink bourbon. There is a restaurant. We haven't been to it yet, but I'll give it a shout out in New York near school called The Great Distillery. And it's on Broadway and Gabe and I want to check it out. So if you've been there, let us know if you like it. And maybe you'll find us there one day with Rabbi Sandra Lawson. While I absolutely had the pleasure of talking shop or bourbon with Rabbi Sandra Lawson, unfortunately, we've hit our last section today of thank yous and closing cues. And so Rabbi Lawson gave Ijan, you know, in Vayishlach, it seems like we're constantly dealing either with conflict or conflict resolution, which to be fair is something that I feel faces us in real life as well, right? Things that we deal with every day. And so what's a Jewish take that you have on either conflict or conflict resolution um, that you would hope that people would think about in times of challenge? Gabe, we'll start with you. You know, in Parashat Vayishlach, we're talking about two brothers and we're talking about their feud and them coming back together. And it reminds me of a line from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, Lo tisna et achicha bilvavecha. Don't hate your brother in your heart. And I think there's something really beautiful about that, that even if we're angry, even if we're disappointed, even if we think the relationship is beyond repair, holding hate is something that's really damaging, not only to your relationship, but to you and to your sacredness. It's hard to hold sacrality while you're also holding hate. And so while we absolutely should hold people accountable and we shouldn't forgive simply for the purpose of forgiving, we should only forgive after teshuva has been done, after repair has been made, it's also important not to hold on to hate. So that's my answer. Beautiful. Rabbi Lawson, what about you? Okay, so, you know, when, I, when you first asked the question, I was thinking about all the times in our text where conflict just goes horribly wrong. And I was having a hard time leaning on, like, the resolution. So, you know, we are a few, a month or so past the Hagim, and that whole process of teshuva is really important in helping us heal if it's done properly. And the text that I want to bring up, it's in Sanhedrin, I think, 15... You know, he or she who destroys a, per, a soul, it's as if they have destroyed an entire world. And what I want people to understand is it's not just about, like, if you kill someone, it's not just about, like, if you say something, do something, like, physically to someone. You know, our words can destroy a soul. Our actions can destroy a soul. And if you hurt someone, whether intentionally or not, you could say it's almost as if you have hurt an entire society but my brain is really like thinking about all the times in our text when the violence that happens in our text. I think it's just thinking about what happened to Dina and what happened in this week's tour portion. I think that that's a fair take. And I'll speak on that when I answer this question. But before I do, Edan. So I think generally speaking, as Jews, we love to argue anyway. We live in conflict. I think a arguing with each other as Jews. It's kind of a the Jewish love language, if you will, as well as all the conflict going on around us and involving us. All we can really do is sort of reclaim that conflict whenever it's happening and take it to be our own and run with it and really just use it for the better. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I used to have this conversation when I worked at Oregon Hillel about conflict conversations that generally when people hear the word conflict, they either think immediately of conflict resolution or they think of what's happening with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's usually kind of what comes to mind. And I think that in Judaism, there is an incredible word that encompasses an entire lifetime of struggle and difficulty, which is teku in Talmud, the word teku means the matter remains unresolved. 
And I think there is something to be said when coming into conflict that you may not be coming into this encounter, into this relationship in order to solve the conflict, but in order to possibly be able to speak to the person or say to the person, wow, like we may be at a take situation that the matter may just remain unresolved and that that conversation can continue even with this thing remaining unsolved, unfixed. That's okay. It may be a little ambiguous, but it's still okay. And it's something that we can work on or towards, but never really complete. Just like a lot of our conversations. And Sandra, if people want to continue conversations like this with you or want to learn about some of the anti-racism work that you're doing with Reconstructing Judaism, how can they find or follow you? I know you're all over the internet. I am. I'm pretty easy to find. On most social media platforms, you can find me as Rabbi Sandra, full stop. And on YouTube, I think I'm Rabbi Sandra Lawson. And also you can find me if you go to the Reconstructing Judaism site. It's slawson at reconstructingjudaism.org. But it's it's pretty easy to, to find me online. It might take a while to respond, but it's easy to find me. Incredible. And also, if you want an interesting response, you can always try to TikTok Rabbi Lawson because she often duets or responds while drinking her coffee to videos that she finds interesting. But if you're down to have a dance party, you can always duet Rabbi Lawson on TikTok because every Shabbat morning... She posts a Shabbat morning dance party, which is always super fun. And you can see some of her fur babies in those videos. So just in case you're uh, trying to check her out on TikTok, I think that you will enjoy that. Sandra, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes that you want to share? I've really enjoyed our conversations here. This is a very relaxing podcast, all very conversational. You guys are great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here and for willing to come to New York to drink bourbon with me and just, you know, talk about life. I'm very excited for this future date. I will be reaching out to you to put it on the calendar eventually. And thank you so much to Gabe for your thoughtful, insightful questions and to Edan for literally making sure our tech worked today because all of us seem to struggle a little bit with figuring out how to make things work, whether it's me with my headphones or Gabe with getting his mic set up or Rabbi Lawson with Audacity. Edan, we are very thankful to you. Kate, thank you for the time that you put in editing this. And thank you, of course, to our listeners. We hope that all of you are doing well and asking yourself some hard questions, even if the answer is teku. The matter remains unresolved. Hey, Gabe. Hey, Amanda. Have you ever noticed that it feels like all we do when we talk about Torah is talk about a lot of drama that happens in these stories? Yeah, our Torah characters weren't really uh, chill. Well, you know, there was that line about the fact that all happy families are happy in the same way, but each miserable family is miserable in its own unique way. Sure. Yeah. So it's a really interesting thing. You know, I read recently in Poke the Box that anxiety is just this idea of feared failure, that you you fail in the future, right? It's a fear of that you've already failed. And that seems to be what is happening with Jacob as he prepares to meet Asa, right? There's this idea of, oh my goodness, it may not work out well. And so I have to be really thoughtful and really strategic and really manipulative to make sure that this situation goes exactly the way I wanted to. I mean, maybe that's what Jacob's been wrestling with. Maybe it's just his own embodied anxiety. It's possible. And there are people that believe that, right? That the man or spiritual figure that Jacob wrestled with might have been Jacob himself or may have been Esau. There are a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions. But what it seems like is these things, these decisions, these directions, they never really go in a straight line. This idea of Yashar El isn't necessarily a real construct that we can relate to. No, it's definitely a more amorphous idea. And I think that's what Rabbi Sandra Lawson was trying to talk about today. This idea that nobody's perfect, that people come into society with different levels of power, with different levels of privilege, and with different perceptions about how the world works and how we treat each other within it. And I think that one of the things that Rabbi Lawson said that spoke to me the most 
was when she said that in every role she's taken on from her first jobs to now being this rabbi, she said that her goal has always been to make herself better and to make the world better. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that, that no matter which role she took on, it was always with the same goal. That makes sense, especially based on the Talmud quote that she used of the person who saves a person saves a world. I think for us, though, it can be a little bit more of a struggle, especially when we're trying to become better allies, when we're learning what that looks like, what that means, you know, whether it's the right moment to call something out if we see injustice, whether it's for us to stand up or step back, what it means to struggle in the real time with the real people and the difficult situations that we're facing. I also think there's an important piece to allyship. This idea of ally is a verb, that if all you're doing is saying, yes, I stand against racism, and then you don't do anything about it, that's not allyship. Allyship has to be action. It has to be really standing up and doing something. And sometimes that action can be asking a question or asking for guidance. Sometimes that action can be just getting started you know, trying and failing. And sometimes that action can be to stop and do a real self-assessment of where it is that you fit into this situation. Are you in part responsible for the scenario that you're in now? Are you a victim of outside circumstances? Are you trying to figure out where best you might fit in the narrative that is being told about the story that you're living? I think that's a great point. And really, that's what we aim to do on this show every week is examine our own inner conflicts, examine the outer conflicts of the world and help our listeners do the same. So if we've helped you do that today, we really encourage you to like us on Facebook, to follow us on all of the social media and to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share us with your friends. It would really help us out. L'chaim. L'chaim. Hi, I'm Rabbi Sandra Lawson, and you're listening to Drinking and Joshing Torah with a Twist. And I've had a wonderful conversation on this podcast.